Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Episode 2, World. Dasein, Heidegger's name for us human beings, is being in the world. Dasein is being in the world. And this uh, phrase is a phrase that Heidegger obsessively repeats in Being in Time. Now, where we are in the book now is uh, is in chapter three, which is where he's going to analyze the phrase in the world. So what Heidegger's doing here, he's taking the idea of Dasein as being in the world and breaking it down into a series of parts. And the part that he's going to deal with here is what does it mean to be in the world. Now, if Dasein is being in the world, then this entails that the world is part of the fundamental constitution of Dasein. And that sounds like an easy thing to say. It's a more difficult thing to do. We are world, is the idea. And that's to say that I am not standing here or sitting here, as the case is, sitting here as a free-floating subject over against a world of objects that stands over against me. So as Heidegger says in um, paragraph 10 of Being in Time, any idea of the subject um, appeals to an idea of ground, a kind of metaphysical ground. So on that basis, Heidegger says we need to avoid all conceptions of the subject, subjectivity, mind, consciousness, person, that whole language. But the, um, the way that's normally um, argued for in philosophy is that we, um, we think of ourselves as subjects and what opposes subjects are objects and those objects stand over against me. Interestingly, the German word for object is Gegenstand. Namely, the object is that which stands against me, gegen me. And that idea of uh, the world has broken down into a subject-object split is the view that Heidegger is trying to oppose in Being in Time. This is what he calls, or what he thinks of, as the epistemological control of the world that is criticised throughout Being in Time. Knowing the epistemic relationship to the world, Heidegger says, this is the argument of paragraph 13 of Being in Time, knowing is a founded mode of being in the world. That is, it is a deficient mode of relating to the world. And out of this deficient mode, the perception of the present at hand is born. This is an interesting thought. So once we begin to relate to the world as a world of knowledge or potential knowledge, then our apprehension of that world of potential knowledge, a world of objects, is uh, a world which I perceive. 
And that perception, those perceptions I have, according to the traditional philosophical picture, can be caught in propositions. And those propositions are things we can assert the truth or falsity of. So that whole picture, objects, subjects, knowledge, perception, representation, propositions, all of that is what Heidegger is going to try and undermine in being in time. We have to forget about the problem of perception. There is no problem of perception and forget about epistemology. Um, rather, for Heidegger, I am my world. I am my world. The world is part of my being. It's part of the structure of my existence. The main claim that Heidegger is going to make in chapter 3 is that the worldhood of the world is an existential. And we'll make that clear. The worldhood of the world is an existential. And what he means by that is that the worldhood of the world, and what he means by that is us, Dasein, uh, is an a priori feature, a constitutive a priori feature of the being of Dasein. A priori, in the sense of both ontological priority, in terms of what is first, according to Heidegger, and also temporal priority. Heidegger makes a link between the a priori and the prior, the previous, or what Heidegger will call over and over again, the always already. So the claim he's going to make in this chapter, which um, I know might sound like an abstract claim, but uh, I'm going to try and break it down in uh, the simplest possible terms, is that uh, we are always already involved in the situation of the world. And I am that situation. I'm not, therefore, a thinking thing over against a realm of extended things. Right? That picture of the world, the picture of the world that you can find in Descartes, where Descartes divides up the world into two types of things, thinking things like us and extended things like cups and tables and objects in the world. That Cartesian view of the world is the picture that Heidegger is going to go on to destroy or deconstruct in the second half of chapter three. And we'll come to that. But the, the point to... Um, retain, is that the human being is not a thing. The human being is not a present-at-hand thing, some kind of substance. And the world's thingly quality is not disclosed theoretically in terms of what Heidegger will call an ontology of the present-at-hand. What he means by that is a way of conceiving things where we conceive things theoretically as they um, show up to a perceiving subject. Rather, the thingly quality of the world is disclosed practically in fascinated or benumbed being alongside it, being inside its outside. To put this a little bit gnomically, a little bit enigmatically. 
and uh, I'll try and make good on this. The thought here is that we are inside the world's outside, or we're outside on the world's inside, thus breaking with any opposition between the inside and the outside. This is kind of a, what Eddie Izzard would call a strokey beard moment in Heidegger. We're inside the world's outside or outside on the world's inside. It's less mysterious than it sounds. Does this mean that Heidegger makes the world subjective? Does this mean that Heidegger makes the world subjective? He raises this issue later in Being in Time. But to make that claim that the world is subjective for Heidegger is to make the mistake of understanding Dasein, the human being, as a subject, divorced from the reality of the world. That's the, um, the Cartesian picture that he's pushing against. For Heidegger, the subject-object distinction is an abstraction that arises at a secondary level. It is, as he puts it, a founded mode of being in the world. Dasein is a priori, always already, worldly. Something like a world has always already announced itself to Dasein. And that verb, to announce itself, the German is sich melden, is a verb that's used very often in these pages. So the question for Heidegger, as I said last time, is a question of access, access to a world. But on the other side of that, how does the world announce itself is very much the way Heidegger puts this, this thought. And the key thought um, at the core of what Heidegger's doing in these pages is that Dasein is openedness. Dasein is openedness. Dasein is thrown openedness. Dasein is always already given over to the world in which it finds itself. Our inside, as it were, our, our self, whatever that means, is always already outside in the world. And this is also um, the, uh, the strength of the, you know, the first translation of Dasein in French was by uh, a man called Jean Beaufray, who was very important for the reception of Heidegger in, in France. And uh, Heidegger's letter on humanism was a, a letter written to Jean Beaufray. And Beaufray's first French translation of Dasein was l'ouverture, the opening. And that's a very good thing to keep in mind. The Dasein, we are the opening. The radicality of Heidegger's first step in chapter three in the analysis of world is that he claims that we cannot get at the phenomenon of the world. Right? And that's Heidegger's interest, the phenomenon of things. And phenomenon simply means that which shows itself. So what Heidegger's always trying to get to is that which shows itself. We cannot get at the phenomenon of the world, the way in which it shows itself by adducing or adding together all the things that there are. 
right? By adding together all the things that there are, we could add together human things, artifacts, natural things. By adding together all those things and then tracing them back to their ultimate foundation in nature and then providing a scientific determination of nature itself. So, I mean, one temptation, in many ways, this is the dominant view of the world, certainly, um, you know, in what some people call the West, not very happy with that term, but let's just use it, is if we want to get a sense of what there is, then we add together, we adduce, add together the different things that there are, human beings, natural things, animals, artifacts. We add all those together and we trace those things back to their ultimate foundation of na in nature and science can provide an explanatory framework for nature. If you adopt that as a philosophical view, then you are a naturalist. Right? Naturalism, which is the most common view of the world amongst philosophers, is that um, that which is, is best explained by natural science or by the methods of natural science. And Heidegger's view is not that naturalism is wrong, but it doesn't give us a satisfactory definition of the phenomenon of the world. That we can't get at the phenomenon of the world by engaging in a naturalistic or scientific determination of a person independent, causally interacting nexus of natural objects, right? It's the way in which science sees things is these things are person independent, causally interacting, a nexus of natural objects, which can be explained by science. To conceive of the world in this manner, would be to conceive of it as present at hand, as objectively present through a theoretical glance, a theoretical perception, and it would be to disregard the existential context of our life in the world, of our lived life in the world. And that's what Heidegger is really uh, concerned with, how things show themselves first and foremost in our lived existential context. Now, the major claim in this analysis of world, and this is a claim made in paragraphs 14 to 18, is that the world announces itself or makes itself, uh, we become aware of it, proximally and for the most part, most closely and mostly, as a world that is handy and useful. The world announces itself as handy and useful. The world of common, average, everyday experience. So my proximal encounter with this table that I happen to be leaning my arms on, I have my papers on, my proximal encounter with this table is not as an object made of a certain definable substance existing in a geometrically ordered space-time continuum. 
Rather, this is the table that's just over there or in here, which is useful, handy for arranging my papers and books when I'm giving a lecture or recording a, an audio uh, program like this. In trying to stay close to that which shows itself, we have to, Heidegger says, this is on page 96 of the translation, we have to thrust aside our interpretative tendencies which cover over our encounter with the world. Thrust aside our interpretative tendencies. And this is a, an interesting point, it seems to me, that the problem with uh, getting clear on who we are, what a, what a world is, what others are in that world, is um, that what keeps uh, blocking that are our interpretative tendencies, our opinions, our received views, the, the views which are handed down by tradition and um, not sufficiently questioned or examined. They keep getting in the way. And what Heidegger is trying to do in Being in Time is to give us another vocabulary uh, for approaching these issues. So, the world, how does the world show itself? So Heidegger's thought in Being in Time, chapter three, is that the world shows itself as usefully handy, as full of handy things, what he calls the ready at hand. In German, that, that word is Zuhandenheit. And to say that the world is full of handy things is what is meant by a term which Heidegger introduces, and it seems like a weird term. Uh, the term is equipment. Uh, the German term there is das Zoig, and that can be thought of in a much more simple-minded way. The way I think of that is as stuff, right? Zoig, equipment, is stuff. Heidegger's thought is that the world is full of stuff, of pragmata, of things. Uh, that's the thought that he's trying to get, and those things show themselves up, first and foremost, as handy. If you, if you like, if this makes things um, easier for the listener, um, then um, please go ahead. If you like, Heidegger is advancing a pragmatic ontology. Right? He's a kind of a, a pragmatist. And in many ways, the thinker who is closest to, to Heidegger in orientation, not in mode of expression, but in orientation, would be someone like um, William James, in my view. But the, let's say Heidegger is, adva is advancing a pragmatic ontology. Now, uh, stuff, equipment, is the name for the things encountered in our everyday concern. And our everyday concern is another term which Heidegger introduces called, it's called besorgen. But we just think of it as concern. We'll come back to that. So Heidegger's thought is that stuff, right? The world is a world of usefully handy stuff. And all of that stuff has a structure and that structure is what he calls the in order to. The in order to. 
namely that I use things in order to do something. I use a hammer in order to bang nails into uh, a piece of wood. I'm not very good at these examples. Um, I use things in order to produce a certain outcome. Uh, now, another important point here is that uh, equipment, stuff, which is why stuff is a really good translation. Stuff is never singular. It is always, as Heidegger says, a totality of equipment. Um, and we can think of a totality of equipment in much more simple-minded terms as a whole of stuff, a mass of thingy. And stuff, equipment, has, Heidegger says, a referential structure. And what do you mean? This is an important point for him, but it's a very simple point. Um, namely, the stuff always refers to other stuff. It's never alone, it's never one piece of stuff, but stuff always comes together with other stuff. So, if I use the example now, the use of you know, medium-sized dry goods that philosophers like to use as examples. Um, I have my glasses, uh, I have my glasses case, I have a, a pen, I have a book, I have a table, I have a chair, I have a, a studio I'm sitting in, there's a heating system, there are, there are floors, there are windows, it's in a building, the building is in a street, the street is in a city, and so on and so forth. The stuff is always a whole of stuff, and that stuff refers to other stuff. And that whole of stuff makes up the context in which uh, I find myself. So Heidegger's view is that my primary access to the phenomenon of the world is not through scientific inquiry, or through a philosophy of nature, but rather through a phenomenological, a descriptive elucidation of that which shows itself. And what shows itself is the average everyday world that is the source of my concern, the source of my fascination. To translate this into another idiom, um, what Heidegger is performing in his analysis of the world is an inversion of the theory-practice distinction. I mean, Heidegger wouldn't be happy with this. He would probably have these terms in quotation marks and that's all fine, but let's just use that distinction because it, uh, it might be helpful. My primary access to the world is not theoretical. It is not the bare perception, sensation, or the spectatorial relation of the theatre-goer in the theatre of the world. The, world. the word theory derives from the word theoros in Greek, and theoros in Greek was uh, a spectator in a theatre, someone who was looking at a play. Heidegger's point 
is that our primary access to the world is not that of spectators in a theater, looking at a world which is somehow value neutral and objectively present, which I can kind of discern theoretically. Rather, my primary encounter with the world is practical, is a relation to a world of things that are useful to me, that are useful to me and which are imbued with significance, imbued with meaning. The world makes sense. I'll come back to that idea. So for Heidegger, our theoretical view on things is founded upon a practical insight. And this practical insight is what he calls Umsicht, which is translated as circumspection. Right? We are practically involved in the world. Now, <clears throat> as I said last time, um, Dasein, the being of Dasein is existence, and the structures of Dasein are existentials. Now, Heidegger has two categories, two categories for things which are not Dasein. And those two categories are, very simply, the present at hand, um, objectively present things as potential objects of scientific inquiry or theory. The present at hand is one category under which we can apprehend things. And the other category is the handy, the ready to hand. Those same things, those very same things cited as useful, as imbued with practical significance. The basic claim that he's making in these pages is that those things which are handy those things which are ready to hand, are not only what is closest to us, proximally and for the most part, which are meaningful for us, they're also ontologically prior. They're also prior in terms of the order of that which is. Praxis, that lovely old Greek word, praxis, is prior to and has priority over theory, right? Praxis has priority over theory. Although, as Heidegger was very well aware, this proposition or this thought of praxis being prior to theory is something which is made as a theoretical proposition in a philosophy book. And uh, I, there's the rub, as Hamlet would say. But the thought, is that who we are, who we are as human beings, as Dasein, is inextricably bound up and bound together with the complex network of social practices that make up my world, a world which is part of who I am. The world is the surrounding world, the world that I care about. This is what Heidegger means when he talks about world as Umwelt, as environment, as the world that surrounds us, that environs us. And there's no way I can cut myself off from my world. I am my world, 
Dasein is being in the world. And the fabric of openness is of one piece. And um, what we're going to see now, um, I've given you the kind of shape of the discussion of the world in, in, uh, in being in time, is that Heidegger is breaking down this idea of Dasein's being in the world into a series of analytically distinguishable elements. Analytically distinguishable, we can make those distinctions, but they are experienced as a whole, as a unity. So now we're going to look at the world, and I've said a little bit about that. In, the, um, in two episodes' time, we'll be looking at the relationship to others. Right? The world is not just a world of things, it's also a world where there are other Daseins. How do we account for that? Our being is social being. How do we describe that? We'll get to that. So that gives us a kind of uh, overview of what Heidegger the claim that Heidegger's making in, in, uh, in this chapter on world. And now I want to give a kind of a survey of the particular claims that he's making in specific paragraphs. Okay, so let's um, go through the, the four paragraphs where Heidegger really lays out his discussion of, uh, of world. Um, the first one is paragraph 15, and Heidegger has really ugly titles for these chapters, um, rebarbative and, uh, you know, not beautiful at all, but actually accurate. So paragraph 15 is called The Being of Entities Encountered in the Environment with which we have dealings. That's pretty, isn't it? The being of entities encountered in the environment with which we have dealings. So what is the being of those things that we encounter in the environment? Well, their being is ready to hand, handy, useful, practically available. And the things that we encounter in the environment are what I've called stuff. Zoig, and this stuff always has the structure of an in order to. Zoig, stuff, is never singular. It always exists with reference to other stuff, and it makes up a whole of stuff, a totality of references or assignments, which we view with circumspection, Heidegger says. Now, um, we then begin to encounter a, a fascinating theoretical problem. Namely that the ready to hand, as ready to hand, the handy as handy, is not grasped theoretically. The peculiarity of the ready to hand is that it must withdraw in order to be grasped as such. It's only when the ready to hand withdraws, the handy breaks down, the useful becomes useless, that it grabs our attention. The question is then, how does the world as ready to hand announce itself? Again, Heidegger's obsessed with this 
verb announcing itself. How does the ready to hand, handy world announce itself? It announces itself as present at hand. It announces itself in the breakdown of the ready to hand. When the hammer breaks, we begin to see it as such. We begin to see it as a hammer. But when we're seeing it as a hammer, namely as a hammer that no longer functions, that we can't forget about while we're using, when we see it in these terms, we're seeing it under the category of the present at hand. And that's going to be developed in the next, uh, next paragraph. Now, um, two more thoughts on um, uh, paragraph 15. Firstly, that um, every ready-to-hand thing for Heidegger has what he calls a towards which or a what for. Right? I, um, I have a watch, let's say I'm wearing a watch, actually I'm not wearing a watch, but if we have a watch, I'm using it in order to tell the time, and the, the time is for, uh, has a, a what for structure, namely it's for me to tell the time. So Dasein is that towards which um, or what things are for. It's a thought that we'll come back to, that the world is a world for us, for Dasein. And the second uh, thought on chapter, uh, paragraph 15, before we leave it behind, is that there's little uh, uh, moments in this, in this paragraph where, where he begins to anticipate a problematic that he'll find in his, uh, that we can find in his later work, which is the theme of the, the earth that um, actually things, ready to hand things, are not just uh, components of world. They're also made out of material stuff. They're composed of, of earth. And what is the relationship between world and earth is something that Heidegger will really begin to analyze in um, a text called The Origin of the Work of Art from the mid-1930s where he'll say something like, um, an artwork is uh, always world-constituting, an artwork sets up a world, but it sets up a world out of the earth uh, from which it is composed. And in setting up a world, the earth kind of pops through, shows up. But we'll come back to that later on in, the, uh, in these uh, podcasts. So paragraph 16, the thesis here, again, thinking of the really ugly titles Heidegger uses for these paragraphs. Uh, how the worldly character of the environment announces itself in entities within the world. How does the worldly character of um, the environment announce itself in things within the world? It announces itself in the breakdown of the totality of assignments or references in the register hand. Now, this occurs when the hammer breaks. So how does this, how does this happen? Heidegger introduces uh, three terms in uh, this paragraph. Um, he says that the worldly character of things is revealed when the register hand becomes conspicuous conspicuous, that is when it becomes 
unusable, when it becomes obtrusive, and when it becomes obstinate. Conspicuous, obtrusive, and obstinate. So, for example, when things are working perfectly well, say when I'm tapping away at my laptop in the local coffee bar, not that I ever do that, but you get the idea, and things are going swimmingly, and then suddenly the screen goes black, and I've got no idea what's happening. My life has evaporated, and so on and so forth. At that point, the computer becomes conspicuous, obtrusive, and obstinate. It shows up as um, something which no longer works in the way in which it did. And this, uh, the question that Heidegger then raises, how does this clarify the phenomenon of the world? And the thought here is that with the breakdown of stuff, with the breakdown of equipment, the world of references into which, say, that hammer or computer fitted becomes conspicuous and the world announces itself. The point that Heidegger is making is um, that the world shows itself up, is disclosed uh, as ready to hand in the breakdown of the ready to hand, when the ready to hand becomes present at hand. And then in paragraph 17, we're moving on briskly, uh, you'd be pleased to hear. In paragraph 17, he raises the following question. Well, if when I'm just using my computer, I'm practically engaged with it, I'm engaged with it as handy, and then the damn thing breaks and it becomes conspicuous, obtrusive, and obstinate, and I begin to see that computer as something present at hand that needs to be fixed, and that's the way things show up. Now, is there a way in which the ready-to-hand can show up as ready-to-hand without becoming present at hand? Is there a way in which I can uh, apprehend the ready-to-handness, the handiness of the world without falling into the present at hand? And the answer to that question is going to be through this concept of signs, S-I-G-N-S, signs. Signs, Heidegger says, are equipment that disclose the world of the register hand in a particular way, namely in a way that is not present at hand, but available for circumspective concern, the way in which I orientate myself in the register hand practical world. So, question now is what is a sign? Well, a sign, Heidegger says, is something which indicates something. And in its indicating, it refers to something. So, there's a relationship between the sign and that to which the sign refers. And uh, this paragraph is full of wonderfully anachronistic examples. And in many ways, one of the most charming features of uh, of being in time is its uh, bundle of anachronistic examples, particularly anachronistic technological examples. 
But um, for example, for example, he says on uh, on page uh, one hundred eight of the translation, you know, what is a sign? A sign would be an example of a sign would be the south wind for a uh, farmer. When the south wind is blowing, then uh, rain is on the way. Right? I've got no idea whether that's right or not. I'm not, uh, I'm not a farmer living in southern Germany, so let's just take it, uh, take it as it is, the south wind. Another example he gives, this is on page uh, 112, this is charming too, is a knot in a handkerchief. That a knot in a handkerchief is, uh, is, is a sign. Namely, I could, if I have a, I, I neither have a handkerchief nor tie knots in handkerchiefs. But let's imagine that we all have handkerchiefs and we tie a knot in that handkerchief and that knot is a sign that we must remember to, I don't know, call our mothers or, I don't know, buy some cheese from the shop or whatever it might be. So that the, uh, the knot in the handkerchief is a reminder which is still, uh, which shows up as something which I see it's a kind of a sign, but it's still ready to hand. And then he gives a, another example. It's not meant to be funny, but I think it, it appears a little bit funny to us. He says, as an example of a sign, we have chosen one which we'll use again in a later analysis, though in another regard. Motor cars are sometimes fitted up with an adjustable red arrow. What is Heidegger talking about? An adjustable red arrow. I can just about remember this when I was a kid, really old cars wouldn't have indicator lights. They'd have little arrows that would pop out the side of the car, like a kind of, um, like it would zoom up and would indicate whether the car was gonna turn left or right. So imagine that. Imagine that kind of slightly antique world. Motor cars are sometimes fitted up with an adjustable red arrow whose position indicates the direction of the vehicle the vehicle will take. At an intersection, for instance, the position of the arrow is controlled by the driver, Heidegger says. This sign is an item of equipment, which is ready to hand for the driver in his concern with driving, but not for him alone. Those who are traveling with him, and they in particular, also make use of it, either by giving way on the proper side or by stopping. You can see this is a rather kind of silly example. The sign, the indicator indicates, the driver is indicating whether they're gonna turn left or right. And that sign is also something which those traveling with the driver or those traveling on the road and looking at the car, it also lights up for them. The point Heidegger says, continuing with the quote, the sign is ready to hand within the world in the whole equipment context of vehicles and traffic regulations world of vehicles and traffic regulations. I bet you never thought you'd be listening to a philosophy discussion on these topics. So the point of signs is that the sign is something ready to hand, something um, practical, which indicates the whole of stuff, the referential totality of the ready to hand. And in this way, if 
for Heidegger, the being of the register hand is revealed as constituted by a totality of references, uh, a whole network of references. So let's go back to the, the car signal. The car signal refers to the car, obviously, the movement of the car. The car refers to the road. The road refers to other vehicles on the road. The road refers to the town. The town refers to the landscape, the environment in which you find that town, and so on and so forth. So the world, as handy, is constituted by a network of references, one thing to another. Now, where does this take us? And this is um, uh, paragraph 18, which is um, where Heidegger tries to pull things together. And it's called involvement and significance. And uh, what is meant by those two concepts? Well, as I might have said in the first episode, I don't remember whether I did or not, the Macquarie and Robinson translation of Being in Time is one of the masterpieces of uh, English translation, in my humble opinion. And uh, when they make a certain decision to choose a certain word, there's a long footnote that explains why they made that decision and also other possible meanings that that term uh, has in German. So there is this word, I'll just say it, you don't have to know it, bewandtnis, uh, and this is translated as involvement. Um, there's a number of moments in Being in Time where the choice of the translation actually says nothing. I mean, what does involvement mean? In a sense, who knows? What it means in the context of the argument is that each thing, each bit of stuff, each, uh, each thing as it is handy and ready to hand and available is always already related to other things in a totality of relations or a whole of stuff, a total context or situation is disclosed in our intentional relation to things. So involvement, think about involvement as context, situation, the situation uh, that we find ourselves in as the world that we happen to be in, which is constituted by things, glasses, glasses, case, pen, book, table, chair, room, windows, or the, whole, the whole thing. Now, um, the world of the register hand, the handy practical world, is a structure of involvements, Heidegger says, where every thing is defined by what Heidegger calls a wozu, a what for. But this structure of involvements has its end in us, in Dasein. Dasein is the being for the sake of which these things are destined. Dasein is the being for the sake of which these things, register hand things, are destined. The world is for the sake of Dasein. Otherwise said, Dasein, us, we, are the a priori condition of possibility for the structure of involvements that we call the world. 
So what characterizes us is that we have understanding of the world. Das Verstehen von Welt, understanding of the world. And the world as a world for us is a world which relies on us, a world which we make, as it were. And this takes us to the second um, concept in this paragraph, involvement and significance. Dasein's familiarity with the totality of involvement, I know this is an ugly way of phrasing it, in the world is one where the world is signifying, signifying. The world is significant for Dasein. The world makes sense. Significance makes up the structure of the world. Uh, as Merleau-Ponty used to put it in another connection, I mean, paraphrasing, I mean, criticizing Sartre's thought, it's not that we're condemned to freedom, we're condemned to meaning. The world just hangs together, makes sense. That's just the fact of the world. The world hangs together, is organized in a certain way. There's no value attached to that. It's just that things make sense. Now, um, I want to um, conclude this episode by reading you uh, a poem. And uh, this poem, I think, in a different register, namely a poetic register, um, elucidates the thought that Heidegger is trying to advance in, in Being in Time. And the poem is by um, someone for me who's the greatest um, philosophical poet in the English language, uh, Wallace Stevens. It's a poem called The Idea of Order at Key West that was written in, or certainly published, I think, in 1935. And um, I'm going to read it to you and then maybe make a couple of remarks about it. And this is a particularly um, kind of apropos thing to do in relation to Heidegger because being in time is a work of philosophy. Um, in a phenomenological style, in, a, in an enormous classical style. But as Heidegger um, proceeded with his, with his thoughts, um, he became increasingly dissatisfied with standard philosophical approaches to things and was very interested in the way in which poetry could disclose and illuminate the world and the human being's life in the world. So let's read this poem. The idea of order at Key West. She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice, like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves. And yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood, inhuman, of the veritable ocean. The sea was not a mask. No more was she. The song and water were not medleyed sound, even if what she sang was what she heard, since what she sang was uttered word by word. It may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she and not the sea we heard.
for she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, tragic-gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Whose spirit is this? We said, because we knew it was the spirit that we sought and knew that we should ask this often as she sang. If it was only the dark voice of the sea that rose or even coloured by many waves, if it was only the outer voice of sky and cloud of the sunken coral water walled, however clear, it would have been deep air, the heaving speech of air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end and sound alone. But it was more than that. More even than her voice and ours among the meaningless plungings of water and the wind, theatrical distances, bronze shadows heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea. It was her voice that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang, the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. Ramon Fernandez, tell me, if you know why, when the singing ended and we turned toward the town, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats had anchored there as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, enchanting night. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals dimly starred and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. It's a beautiful poem. Um, I don't want to reduce the poem to a kind of philosophical example, but the thought here is that, I mean, the poem describes a, a situation, a situation where there is someone, she, um, who's singing, and she's singing, um, walking alongside the sea, she and the sea. Those are the two initial characters in the, in the poem. And she sang beyond the genius of the sea. It's where we begin. And um, this person, this woman, this spirit, this angel, this siren, it's not clear what she is. Uh, it's not, we have no physical description of her. She's just described with the pronoun she. Is observed by two other characters. The... Um, let's say the poet, or at least the, the voice in the poem. We could identify that with Wallace Stevens. And another character called Ramon Fernandez. And the action of the poem is that Ramon Fernandez, um, and this is uh, in Key West, in Florida in the 1930s, and the poet are observing this figure, she, walking by the sea singing and the um, 
The conclusion the poet comes to is that she was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang the sea, whatever self it had became the self that was her song because she was the maker, right? There never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. So the world, uh, the world is a world that is constituted through the song, in this case, the song of the, uh, the woman, the spirit, and whatever meaning world has is dependent upon her and dependent upon her song. So the idea here is that the world is the world, the sea is the sea. It exists as a brute material reality. Um, but it's what Stevens calls the meaningless, the meaningless plungings of water and the wind. But that, uh, that stuff, that natural stuff, becomes composed into a world of meaning through the activity of song, through the activity of her. There never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. The world has meaning for us and is dependent upon us for meaning. Um, that a meaningful world, a world of value, if you like, is a world that, as Heidegger would put it, is Dasein dependent. If we did not exist, if Dasein did not, not exist, then the world would not be there. The world as a meaningful world would just not show up. And, um, you know, what happens in the poem is that Ravon Fernandez and the, the poetic voice they turn away from the, um, uh, the woman singing and the sea by which she singer. They turn back towards the town. And then a question is asked, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea. Why is there an order? Why, when we turn away from the woman singing by the sea and we turn back towards the town and we look, why does it appear that the town is ordered, is organized, hangs together in a certain way, is composed in a certain way? Well, the answer is that's just what we do. We are being in the world and we um, are beings who bring meaning to the world. And the next step, the next episode, uh, is gonna kind of pick up and develop that thought in relationship to the theme of space. So, see you next time.